Hello, this is Michael, and thank you for listening to St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations. You are about to hear part one of my interview with Bishop Greg Rickle, recorded just a couple of days before Easter 2020. If you liked what you heard, all you have to do to listen to part two is go to stmarks.org, click connect, click podcast, and then click on part two of this interview. We hope you enjoy it. I did want to thank you so much. I, I cannot even begin to imagine how, how inverted your schedule must be uh, right now. Really, Holy Week historically is not a week that the bishop gets real involved in. It's kind of interesting. It's our busiest week, but in many uh, ways, a Holy Week is kind of a quiet week for a bishop. Not so much this year, but usually it is anyway. Like I'm going to promise the, the uh, clergy today when I send out my update that I've been sending out daily mm-hmm. uh, since this all started, that I'm not going to send any for the next four days so that they don't have to hear from me. <laughs> so, and that's, that's the way Holy Week usually goes for <laughs> us. So no worries about that. This is important too, so I appreciate it. Welcome to St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations, a podcast featuring members of the St. Mark's Cathedral community in Seattle, Washington. These interviews feature lives of faith and adventure, service and connection. Here's our host, Michael Pereira. Welcome to this uh, very special quarantined episode of Cathedral Conversations. And wherever you're listening from, I hope you are safe and well with your family. Let me start this interview by giving you a bit of background. A few months ago, I thought it would be a good idea to interview Bishop Rickle before Cathedral Day 2020 to find out why Cathedral Day is so important for our diocese. And the idea was to get that question, certainly, but then also to find out a little bit about him as well. His office got back to me and said, hey, he's, the bishop is free before Easter. Do you want to do the interview then? And I thought, great, we can talk about Easter as well. And then came COVID-19. And I emailed his office to say, I assume the interview is off. And then by means of a reply, I got a Zoom invitation to this meeting uh, because Zoom is how we do things nowadays. And that is how and why I'm very grateful and very honored to talk with Bishop Gregory Rickle today. Bishop Rickle, thank you so much for being a part of uh, St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations. Well, absolutely. And thank you, Michael. And it's an honor to be with you today. So. <laughs> To start with, we have a lot to talk about, and I'm sure this could span many conversations. So we'll we'll start in order, and we'll try to stay on topic. Before all this, before all this craziness and chaos started, one of my questions was simply, "How does somebody become a bishop?" But then I thought, "Dial it back, dial it back, dial it back." How did <laughs> this start for you? How did? I mean, I, I don't imagine you woke up one day and thought, "Hey, I want to be a bishop." In the episode. no. No. So how, how did this journey begin for you? I mean, I wouldn't even say that I didn't know until I was 19 or so that I wanted to be an Episcopalian. So the, the whole idea of being a bishop didn't even come into the picture <laughs> at that point. Uh, so, you know, that's how it started for me. I was uh, raised really in no church at all. When I was uh, about 12 years old, uh, a friend of mine who played baseball with me on the team that I was on invited me to church. It was the first time anyone had ever really talked about it to me. 
and I, I thought it was intriguing. I thought, I haven't been to church. I'll go see what that's like. So uh, he was a Methodist, and he took me to church, and I kind of fell in love with it. And uh, I've told this story before, but I really never will forget the uh, pastor. He was a, he wore overalls. He was a farmer and a pastor in Arkansas. And when I walked out the door, uh, my friend introduced me to him. And then uh, that pastor put his hand on my shoulder and he said, welcome home. Wow. And I've never, ever forgotten that. And uh, so I, I became very involved in the Methodist church. I was the president of the, uh, what's called the United Methodist Youth uh, back then uh, for the state of Arkansas and uh, <clears throat> got really involved. And, uh, but, you know, after uh, I was headed to high school at a Catholic high school, uh, I started thinking that Methodism wasn't really my cup of tea. It wasn't the theology I probably was most wedded to. And then being in a Roman Catholic high school, an all-boys school, uh, I also loved the liturgy, the Catholic liturgy, but I did not really abide by their theology that much either. There were lots of problems I had with it. So uh, luckily, the Monsignor who ran that school was one of the uh, he's one of the heroes of Arkansas for sure. And very well known. And, uh, what intrigued me about him was he, he really took to me because I was, a in a single parent home, uh, at that time from a divorce family. And he would take care of those boys a little more, but he would always, uh, chat with me. And, uh, he started pursuing me to be a Catholic priest about six months into being there. So I guess I'd say he was the first one that saw something in me that, that might be that. And uh, I had had some of those inklings in the Methodist church too. But Methodism and Roman Catholicism kind of raised me to the point of uh, becoming and finding the Episcopal church. And it, it was because of Father Tribu, Monsignor Tribu. He, he uh, in a conversation we were having one day, he said, why won't you become a Roman Catholic priest? You don't have anything better to do. That was kind of like he, that's how he talked to me. But uh, I said, well, you know, I have a lot of problems with Catholicism. Uh, number one, I like girls. And, you know, I, pl I, I plan to marry one. So, you know, that, that doesn't fit uh, with you all. Uh, I think the Pope is kind of a silly idea. I like the Pope, but, you know, the idea of one person over the whole world uh, I struggle with that. And some of the edicts he can make, I struggle with that. And third, I don't like it when um, I'm in Eucharist with everybody here and you have to say all the Protestant boys, when you get back from, uh, when, when the Roman Catholics come back from communion, you need to scoot down to the end of the pew so they can get back in. Um, I said, somehow that's, I just don't envision Jesus making that kind of declaration to a group of people who have gathered to worship. And it just doesn't fit with the idea of Jesus who I have. And he, I'll never forget it. He was leaning back in his chair. He smoked a cigar. He was smoking a cigar. He finally took it out and looked at me and said, Greg, you sound like a damn Episcopalian. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I, I remember looking at him and saying, well, what's that? And he said, Oh God, you know, he said, that's the church of England, you know, and he started telling me about it. And so as bizarre as it sounds, a Roman Catholic Monsignor is the one that put me on the path of going 
to become an Episcopalian. And then eventually uh, through that, uh, pretty early on, I, I wanted to be a priest. But my bishop, uh, Bishop Donovan, who some people will remember, because he's certainly been to St. Mark's a few times, even during my episcopacy. But he said, uh, if you tell me you wanted to go right now, I was 19. He said, I'd tell you, you need to go get a job. And um, he pretty much sent me out of his office and said, you're too young. Uh, go get a job and come back and see me sometime later. And so I did. I mean, I became a hospital administrator and really did that for over a decade and uh, almost didn't want to leave it then. Uh, but then the church came back to me. So it's a long answer because really anybody who answers that, it has you have to start at the beginning because you become a bishop, I think, by the totality of your life and not just, you know, the de decision that someday you're going to do it. And in our system, becoming a bishop is a corporate decision, a communal decision. It's not a, it's not a singular decision. Yes, I personally had to decide this is something I'm willing to put my name in for. Really, uh, other people put your name in, in in most typical fashion, and certainly everybody in the church, as represented by the council or the convention or whatever you, you call, it, are the ones who decide who the bishop is. So, so it's a tricky question for us because uh, for us in the Episcopal Church, very different. In Roman Catholicism, the Pope makes appointments. Uh, in uh, Methodism, uh, it's a similar kind of situation, but here in the Episcopal Church, it's a democratic process. It's a literal election, and the people get to elect. And so uh, you really do have to, um, uh, you know, it's got to be something that's communally felt. It, it can't just be a singular notion, and that works all the way through our process. If you want to be a priest, it's the same way. You don't you don't get to decide on your own. Like in some of the evangelical uh, uh, denominations I was part of where you just, all you got to stand up and say, I'm called to be a, a preacher and I'm going to be one, you know, <laughs> and uh, in the Episcopal church, it doesn't quite work like that. You can say that. And then, then we take you and say, let's see if we agree with that. You know, that's, that's how it works. And uh, for us. So, uh, I don't know. I don't want to take up all the time talking about this, but I'll leave that as the base uh, story. And if you want to ask other questions about that, I'm glad to answer. I'll add a little bit of my own insight into that. I'm not ordained by any means, but uh, last year I served on a discernment committee for an aspirant at another church. And yeah. that was my first time serving in that role. And I loved how methodical that process was, how, uh, how spiritually grounded it was and how deeply interpersonal it was. And I like that that exists for our leaders, that if somebody does feel honestly, legitimately called to be an ordained leader in this community, we say, great, but let's do this very carefully. Let's do this in a very involved sense so that if there are any concerns, we can identify these and help you through them early in the process, as opposed to investing somebody who's not quite ready with way too much authority, uh, which there have been many churches, Episcopal Church is no exception, where mistakes have been made by not well, having a yes. process. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I think uh, 
I think it's fair for us to say sometimes the decision is never agreed upon. So a person may for the rest of their life feel like they're called, but the church continually says no. And I tell people all the time, uh, I really wish it wasn't such a black and white world we live in because for the kingdom, I think for God's kingdom, it's not so black and white. And so I don't actually see it as a no. I, I tell people it's certainly not a failure because you didn't get to become what you think you're called to be, but it, it may mean many things that you're this, uh, you would have been a great, I've told people this, you would have been a great priest in another time, but, but you won't be a great priest in this time. Uh, and that's, that's such a hard, uh, you know, it's one of the heavier things I have to decide sometimes, but um, it's rare, but it does happen that people don't uh, get through that process with the communal answer of yes. So I think it's, we have to say that. I mean, it, it wouldn't be quite a good process if every single person that put themselves forward got through it. You know, I mean, there's gotta be some uh, notion that, you could get a no. And uh, I often talk to people about that, but I do feel uh, as one uh, great sage and hero priest of this diocese, Jack Gorsuch, uh, God rest his soul, uh, said to me when I came here before I even knew who he was, he, he once ran for election to Bishop here in uh, Olympia back when Bob Cochran was elected, he would have been the sixth bishop. And uh, he, he tells a, a compelling story about the night before the election, uh, having a dream that made him know he was not supposed to be the bishop. And being terrified as the election went on the next day that he might get elected. And it did go a lot of ballots. Uh, and he was so thankful when Bob Cochran was elected. But he finished the letter and telling me that story. He said, Greg, I'm convinced of one thing. Everybody wins in these elections. He said, you may not understand it now. You may not know it now. But I really believe everybody wins uh, in these elections. And I've always held that because I think, um, I think there's a great deal of truth to that. Uh, I had been in one other election in Arkansas before Olympia. And uh, it I essentially came in second after seven ballots, which is a lot of ballots in an Episcopal election. And, um, and that was kind of home. And, you know, after that election, I didn't think I'd even run ever again. And, uh, but all that came flooding back when, it, when Gorsuch said that to me, because, uh, you know, he's right. Uh, if that had not happened, I wouldn't be here, which I much prefer being here. So, you know, some uh, divinity had much greater ideas than I was capable of having. So, you know, I think it worked sometimes that way. Uh, you mentioned being Bishop off Olympia. What does it mean to be the Bishop of this region? Where that question is coming from is that this is not a region that is traditionally or strongly churched. We've heard, we hear so much about how the religious affiliations in, this, uh, in the Pacific Northwest are lower than many, many other parts of the country. What does it mean to be the Bishop of Olympia in general, but then also with that? Yeah, I think that's a good, very good question. Uh, first of all, I'd tell a little joke that we tell on ourselves in the church. I think actually Bishop Bain, Stephen Bain, who was third Bishop of Olympia, 
uh, actually said this one time and he said, you know, I, uh, we travel, we have to travel so much. People don't understand that bishops actually, when they sign their letter of agreement, it says 25% of your time will be spent outside the diocese helping the Episcopal church and the Anglican. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Bishop Bain's uh, favorite thing was to say, uh, I've been gone so much, people think I'm the bishop from Olympia, not the bishop of Olympia. <laughs> and so I always remember that because uh, you can you can get to have that feeling if you're not careful. Um, so, But to your greater question, uh, every Episcopal diocese or every Anglican diocese probably in our history has been a geographical unit. Uh, they're always geographical by boundaries. Sometimes they match the states in uh, the U.S., but often they don't. Ours doesn't. Ours is just the western third, really, of Washington State, including the islands, San Juan Islands. Uh, but what we always did in those is that we named it uh, for something about that region. And when we say the Bishop of Olympia, you're not claiming that you're the bishop of every person that lives there. Although I would say in our parish model in Anglicanism and our diocesan model, in some respects, you are under that idea. So a priest that has a parish really should see themselves, he or she, as the uh, vicar or rector of that block, those six blocks, that parish, whatever the parish is. The parish in itself was a actual notion of a boundary so even in louisiana today they're not called counties they're called parishes and they're called parishes because of the strong roman catholic uh, influence there and literally they are boundaries they literally are and so you would be known as the vicar of that parish or the vicar of this uh, county so i think you still have to live under that notion realizing that many people do not recognize you as the bishop of anything and uh, they're not going to give you much uh, heed or anything and i think across geography in the united states that varies depending on where you are uh and de- depending on the um, religious upbringing of the people that you serve that can vary also and it does certainly across the globe um but uh, the Bishop of Olympia, it's an interesting story in Olympia because, uh, you know, many people wanted to call this the Diocese of Western Washington, uh, but they, they you know, persisted in the idea that it ought to be the capital city. And so, and also Olympia, uh, it just sounds some more, such, so much more romantic, you know, <laughs> I mean, to be the Diocese of Olympia and for all of us to be Olympians. Uh, you know, that's that's a romantic idea. You know, that's better than Western Washington. So <laughs> there is a story you'll hear if you're in the diocese long enough. It's not true, or at least I've never been able to. Uh, it, it's, it comes from uh, a story that probably was kind of true. Um, and it's a story about one of our bishops going to Lambeth and going to Buckingham Palace and meeting the queen. And having the queen actually deign to speak to them and say, oh, you're from Washington. Uh, I love your nation's capital. And uh, our bishop was so incensed when they when the queen walked off that she didn't know geography and where we were that he demanded that we change our name. It's not a true story. It is a, a true story in the sense that that actually happened. The queen made the mistake of saying, you know, that that Washington. 
but those two things aren't connected. (laughs) It's a a completed story. Um, And I think it might have been John Houston that that happened to, but I'm not sure. Uh, But um, but anyway, I think being the Bishop of Olympia is representing all Episcopalians in its purest form. It's, it's representing and being the uh, spiritual head and ecclesiastical authority uh, for all the Episcopalians in a geographic boundary. So that's the most technical uh, version of it. So there was a second part of that I think you wanted to know. What's the deeper part of that? The deeper part is this area is not traditionally known for being a robust oh, yes. stronghold of Christianity. What yeah, does it mean to be right. a spiritual and administrative leader of a church when we don't have the the church attendance? And not that church attendance is the be all and end all, but right. when we're not a hugely uh, religious or a spiritual area. Yeah, well, I think for me that plays out in uh, what I call uh, a kind of random curiosity, uh, which is interesting because in the South, for instance, if I walked around in my collar, uh, people didn't really question what I was doing or who I was. They, they kind of got the picture. They might think I'm Roman Catholic. They may wonder if I'm a Lutheran, but they kind of know it. You know, it's a, it's a little more of a religious marinated world. Uh, so moving up here was very different because it's the exact opposite here. So random curiosity, uh, you know, uh, there's a woman who takes the fairy tales at the Clinton uh, ferry dock up on Whidbey Island. And every time I pull up in my collar, she says, Oh, it's my purple man. <laughs> and uh, she said, I just love that shirt. You know, our first conversation, I love that shirt. That color looks great on you. I said, well, I didn't pick it. It picked me, you know, and we'd have a quick conversation. It was just it's so funny. Every time I go in there, I tell her a little bit more, you know, she'd, she'd say, well, what's the purple about, you know? Oh, I'm a bishop in the church. What's a bishop? You know, I said, the next time I come, I'll tell you, you know, so we, we kind of do that kind of rolling conversation. Nice. And uh, yeah, so I think it's, uh, it's to me, it's far more exciting to be in a place like this doing this than it would be in a place marinated in it, because I think this is more like uh, what it must have been for Christianity to try to take off whole cloth, you know, and uh, to me, that's exciting. It's like you have, you do have some blank slates uh, in the, and I mean that in the best sense of just kind of not burdened with all of the religious uh, stuff that comes when you're, from a place where it's just always there Um, so that we have a chance here, I think to get it right a second time or maybe a fourth or fifth or 15th time, depending on history and how you see it um, to do it better and to do it right. And to really present what Christianity is instead of what it has kind of become in the minds of, many because of what I would say are misguided ways of practicing it. Uh, so I, I kind of relish that, that uh, part about this being, you know, clearly the wild west of the church, you know, uh, in this moment, I think it's a good thing for me anyway. I like it. 
I really like that description of how this is the Wild West of the church. I mean, in a way, it, it harkens back to so much of the natural history here. But then also that this is a frontier for the Episcopal Church. Like you said, we're not, we're not being handed anything on a platter here. And neither should we. That's probably a yeah. good thing. But that it does reflect on the work that we have to do as Christians and as Episcopalians to be, to be a model, to be a place that even all those millions of unchurched people can say there's something there that's worth looking into. Yeah, like, and, and even in this pandemic, uh, this has played itself out. For instance, uh, you know, I I find it uh, I find it deeply troubling uh, that our uh, Christian siblings in the middle of the country and some of the governors have decided that somehow gatherings of religious uh, organizations are somehow immune to this disease or don't or fall outside. And I just don't buy it. And uh, so here, when it first came, when the governor's orders first came out, it did appear that he was banning all gatherings of religious institutions. So we had to go after that a little bit. But this is the part that I, you know, there's a lot of hope here in this part of the country because when we got to the governor, he was, you know, he was just totally saying, oh no, I mean, we shouldn't, you should abide by the same gathering of numbers, but you are essential to keeping our society going. And we do want to find a way for you to be able to be connected to your people. So virtual worship basically was said, okay to, uh, by him. And, you know, if you were in a totally, um, uh, agnostic atheist society, which some, so many people, that I meet across the world and across this country will kind of refer to us as that, you know, an atheist. Uh, if you were in that truly, you wouldn't have people like the governor saying, no, that's an essential thing. We've got to have that. You wouldn't have the mayor saying, you know, our faith communities are really, really important in times like this, but all the time. You wouldn't have that uh, if, if it was purely that kind of society here. So we still have some uh, deeply latent Christianity and faith following here in this part of the world. I mean, people are still sprinkled with faith dust, you might say, you know, no matter where they came from, they got some of them, some of it on them. And they do know a little bit about what it is. And uh, that's kind of an exciting place to, to do ministry, I think. It reminds me of that curiosity that you said people have. It's not slamming the door in our face. It's not running away, but there is a willingness to engage, even if they're still figuring it out. And they still don't right. know much of what we do. But to have a conversation yeah. about your caller, for example, or to say, even with so much going on, the spiritual component that churches are offering is still important. Yeah, I, I, I think it's... It's a, you see the same thing here that you see anywhere. If when you hit, for instance, I think if our uh, churches were open right now, the threat, you know, the threat of this disease or whatever crisis we were having, uh, people would be packing the churches. We would see it. Uh, we would see an increase in uh, attendance. If it wasn't just based on, you know, being out is dangerous. You know, we're not going to see that now. We shouldn't see that now. But if, if that wasn't the issue, we would see it go up. 
after 9-11, we saw it go up for months, you know. So people still need it, even though they don't go to it every month. Uh, we have probably more vicarious members than we've ever had in the Episcopal Church or in mainline churches. We've always had vicarious members. This is actually part of a model that we teach in the College for Congregational Development and, you know, just generally to people who are trying to form a congregation. We have vicarious members. There are people out in the community that say, well, if I went to church, I'd go there. They don't go, you know, and they, but, but they have it in their mind. You know, if I had to go to church, I would go there, you know. Uh, there are a lot of those people in the Pacific Northwest for every congregation, the vicarious member who says, well, you know, I, I just don't go to church every Sunday and I don't need to or whatever they say. But but if I did, I'd go there. You know, that's that's good. For, to me, that's good. Uh, I tell people uh, work with that. You know, they're already thinking enough about you to uh, kind of say I'd go there if I went to church. That's that's a big first step you know, uh, and we, it's always our goal to maybe get them past that step and say, well, why don't you step in there someday and see what's going on and that kind of thing. So it's an interesting place, but it's, um, I think it's exactly the kind of place that Christians tend to do well in if we pay attention to what we're dealing with and don't get complacent mm -hmm. and don't decide that I'm comfortable. And those are all big, big dangers for Christianity and for Episcopalians especially. I love how you covered so much with that because that really does go into what I did want to talk about with COVID-19. Uh, specifically, you, you touched on this, but the role of Episcopal churches at a time like this when for obvious reasons we have to keep the doors closed, but at St. Mark's and I know at dozens of other parishes in this diocese, there's been 24-7 work on what they can do to still be connected, to still open up in ways that they haven't done before. And then to your point then about those vicarious members of the community who say, if I was going to a church, I'd love to go to a church that's doing what they're doing, which is to stay yeah. metaphorically and spiritually open. Yeah. I would say uh, the interesting thing about that, I said, I touched on this earlier, but, um, uh, you know, I I think people that are searching or might be seeking or those vicarious members, they, they do. I, I worry about them looking at Christianity sometimes from the views they get, which is media. And, uh, you know, when we, when we're, as I say, Christians behaving badly, which there are lots of uh, instances of that out there. Uh, and I think one of them is to defy the orders that are going on right now. And it's an interesting Thing. I think this will do some to dig in more to what you're getting at. I've had a lot of my ecumenical friends who don't are not in a hierarchical church right now um, that are in free churches and say to me, you know, these are the times when we need a bishop. These are the times where we need direction. And uh, this is the time when I miss not having one and not being in a church like you. And it's, I mean, that can go both ways. I, I totally get that. And, you know, that's a delicate thing I have to hold all the time. But for instance, in this pandemic, you know, I think many people were waiting for me to decide, are we going to close our churches or not? And the interesting thing is that really I would, I would cop to the fact that canonically 
I probably don't have the power to, to make some of the decisions I have over these last few weeks. But that's the great thing I think about Anglicanism is it doesn't matter if it's codified many, many times. It's like we're looking for direction, whether it's codified or we're going to follow it because that's what we do. You know, and if we trust you, it, it's going to work better. But, but, you know, that's what we do. So, for instance, when I say uh, we're going to close down like the governor has said, a parish, for instance, a mission can't. A mission uh, really, I am the rector of missions, so if I say we're closing, we are. But parishes really don't have to follow what I say. I mean, on that particular thing, clergy do. That's where my power is, the clergy. It's not with the congregations. But, uh, but even at that, they could say, well, we're going to stay open no matter what you said. Now, that's where the force of the law comes in, where not only me say it, but the governor says it. Well, go ahead and do that, and you'll do it at your own risk. You know? but, but by and large, I would say 99.9% .9 of people, including the clergy, are glad in moments like this and we can be together on the decision and we can make decisions that protect people and, and add to the safety. And they're thankful for that, that somebody's saying it. So they, they're not the only ones that have to stand up alone and say, we're not going to do this or that or whatever it is. That works both ways. Uh, you know, the bishop can also do that in times when people really aren't looking for that at all. And those are the tougher times for me <laughs> when those times come up, but they do. I'm glad you went into that. I mean, literally my next question was on the decision to place the churches in quarantine. And there are many dimensions there from the governor's office, certainly from your office, but then this, this strange autonomy, for lack of a better term, that Episcopal churches have. And it is a contrast to how you, to how you identified Roman Catholic churches where that that hierarchy is a lot more top down and it's whatever the the archbishop yeah. or the cardinal says here you as you said the power of the congregation is with the congregation but we have hopefully if we're doing this right we have enough of a good relationship between congregation clergy and and bishop that we are all on the same page and when we recognize the need to do this right we're not at competing ends Correct. I mean, it's, it's always better when there's trust all the way up that line, when there's relationship all the way up that line. Uh, I, I, I'm the president of the province eight house of bishops, which is basically the Western United States, but it also includes Taiwan and, uh, and Hawaii. And, uh, and I got them together last week. And there are three bishops in that group now that are in their first year. And I said in my prayer to them that, uh, you know, I, I, I had a special prayer for them because there, there would be some marvelous things about this happening in your first year as a bishop. Uh, you would really uh, build relationships that you probably wouldn't build any other way. But there'd be some remarkable burdens in this being your first year of trying to build relationship in the diocese and all that. And I, I feel for them and yet they're, they're doing great. And, and, you know, this is an, another example of Anglicanism. It's like, well, you're the Bishop. We haven't gotten to know you yet, but we're going to follow what you, uh, what you tell us to do. 
And uh, so they're dealing with a lot of that and, you know, getting good response too. But uh, I, I had my own challenges in my first year, uh, but it wasn't anything like this. So, and it's, it's, I have to say that going through this after 13 years, um, I, I'm much happier about that being the situation than if it was my first year. Oh, because when people, when people talk to me on the phone or I see them on zoom, I know who they are. You know, I've been to where they are. I, it's not like I'm trying to figure all that out no. also in the midst of this, which I just think would be a, um, a greater burden to, to which I really pray for those first year bishops. And there are lots of them across the church right now. Uh, and they're doing a great job, but uh, it would be a hard time, I think, to, to have your first year during this. That's scary. I mean, God knows they have the support from their their own offices and their, their clergies and their parishes, but this would be a lot to take on in your yeah. first year. For us, you know, really it is the, our, my authority is really over the clergy. Hmm. So let's, let's say for instance, this didn't go well. I said, we're going to close all the churches and a couple of parishes revolt and say, no, we're not. Um, you know, if I wanted to get adamant, the way I'd get adamant is by taking on the clergy. In other words, that's where I have canonical authority. I can yeah. say you are defying a direct order, you know, uh, that I'm telling you. The church, it'd be interesting. Nobody's tried this. It'd be interesting. The church could say, forget you. You know, they could tell the priest, go sit over there in the corner and uh, we're going to meet anyway. And then it becomes the issue of who has control over the building. Oh, wow. And really canonically, the, the rector has control over the building. So they, they can decide alone how a building will be used. Um, so they they would still be on the hook, you might say, for making sure it gets locked up and nobody comes in because the bishop said so. But <laughs> the idea is they can blame me. You know, I tell people all the time, one of the real roles for bishops, so you have someone you can blame, you know, someone you can, uh, I jokingly say at every consecration that we ought to issue a huge target for people to wear around their neck. Because, you know, after a while, uh, the targets get bigger and bigger. <laughs> Thanks. So. I mean, you kind of know what you're signing up for when you get that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you've been doing this for 13 years. What is your spiritual response? I mean, I don't think we've ever seen a public safety situation on a scale like this in over a decade, if not longer. As 13 years, Bishop of Olympia, how do you spiritually respond to that? Well, uh, some of what I just said, I think so important is uh, having 13 years under our belts together, all of us, uh, really is helpful in moments like this, I think, because we know each other, uh, that we're not trying to do that dance while we're also trying to uh, help the church get through this. So to me, that's really important. But the spiritual response, I mean, one thing I've loved about this, I have to admit, is that my prayer life is far more regimented now and uh, clearer uh, because I can, I can put those things uh, in just uh, seems like easier than when I'm having to get in a car and travel or go on a plane or do whatever. <laughs> so I think the spiritual response just from that has been great. 
And hopefully what I can come out of this with is a way to follow that. And we do get back to some semblance of that and let it not fall away. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, the 13 years uh, of being here has uh, really helped us through this. Now, you know, if we didn't have a good relationship, which, you know, there are people out there that would say we don't, but I think the vast majority of people would say we do. And uh, if, if we didn't have that, that, that would, that 13 years might be a burden and a, and a real liability too, you know? So, uh, all of that time has helped us to be good and solid in this moment. Uh, and I think spiritually too, what's come to me, this, this may be on the more negative side, but I'm going to say it anyway. I've been impressed, so impressed by uh, our Jewish and Muslim uh, brothers and sisters who are able to come out and say clearly and definitively, and they did long before we did actually, that uh, there is nothing more important than the sanctity of life and that uh, none of our traditions, none of our rituals are more important than that. And if this is what we're supposed to do right now, this is what we're supposed to do. And they can even cite script their scripture and say, you know, it's clear. Muhammad's clear on this. Uh, you know, Judaism's clear on this. And I've been uh, a little bit saddened that Christianity can't be clear on that. You know, we're kind of all over the map, uh, even defiant and kind of cavalier, uh, as we see in some of the South, uh, you know, just we're going to meet, God's going to protect us. You know, I mean, it's just, it's sad because that's, that's the, um, I really believe that people that are looking to, for Christianity for some kind of rational uh, uh, belief and also some care, actual care for the people that are in their charge. Uh, I think that flies in the face of that and it hurts us. So I haven't liked that part. And I, I think spiritually I've been um, weighed down a little bit by that, that we can't seem to do that like, like I've witnessed uh, Islam do and Judaism do through this crisis. Yeah, I'll, For instance, I'll... Passover, Passover just happened. We're, we're uh, taping this right around Passover. So, uh, and I would say that, um, uh, it's been remarkable how uh, I think the rabbis have been very clear that, yes, this ritual is important, but it's not more important than protecting yourself. And you are completely free from doing any of this if it puts you in danger. That That's the right response, I think. You know, like people are more important. Your life is the most important thing. Your God will be with you no matter what, no matter if you practice this today or not. So, I think that ought to be our message instead of this kind of half-hearted, we're going to be defiant and arrogant and do whatever we want. It's not helpful. No, no. <laughs> I don't think it's helpful. But I love that theology of your God will be with you wherever you are. And for so many people doing this the right way, they're at home or they're sheltering and God is still with them, regardless of the liturgies and the rituals, which we can run the risk of idolizing, I think, where we put so much importance. Absolutely. On that. Absolutely. I mean, I, I preached this week 
via Zoom to uh, about 130 clergy who um, renewed their vows. And we typically do that on Holy Week. We often do it at St. Mark's, but we couldn't do it in person. But in my sermon in there, that's what I said. I, I uh, uh, you know, maybe this time's going to teach us uh, how wedded we are to some of those things and make us ask why. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't be a bad thing. You know, why are we so wedded to this? For instance, just a month ago, people were arguing with me because I said we won't use the common cup. They were arguing with me about how their 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 complete spiritual and faith base will fall apart if they can't have the common cup. And I had to say, really? I mean, that one thing will make you fall away from God, that, that you don't get to have the common cup. Your faith is way, way too thin. I mean, you need to work on it. I, I mean, if that's what's going to make you fall away, uh, it's not very strong to begin with. You know, I mean, I, I think we're, we really are going to have to take a hard look at that. I, I don't, you know, I'm as wedded to the ritual. I love it too, but it's not what we worship. It's the way we worship. It's not what we worship. And I think we really have been able to see that more during this time. And I hope that we will hold it and try to, uh, you know, debrief ourselves on that as we come out of it. Uh, and I'm, surely we're going to, I mean, this is going to change us in ways we have no idea, but I think many of the changes could be very positive. And this might be one, you know, uh, even if we go back to doing all the things we've done, which I'm okay with, I have to believe they're going to mean different things to us now. And that hopefully we're not, we're, we got them in position again, in priority. You know, this is important, but it ain't the most important thing. You know, I mean, uh, and so I said that to them. And then I also just caught to the fact that I'm a, a process theologian. Uh, it's a very sp- specific uh, theology that basically says that God uh, is love and God uh, is in everything we do and with us in everything we do, but doesn't really it's it, it gets away from what tends to be classic theism where uh, God actually, we can actually change God through our prayers. Uh, some might say, you know, the jerk, the chain God, you know, like you just jerk the chain enough, you'll get God to do what you want. Uh, I don't believe in that. Um, I don't really think it's good theology when we tell people it's God's will. I pretty much stopped doing that. Uh, because I don't believe it anymore. Uh, But what I definitely believe is God's with us in all of this, loves us through all of it, will love us forever. Um, But this idea that somehow we're going to be more safe and that God's going to protect us over other people is just arrogant and flies in the face of what and who God is, I think. And so we have to tell the truth. I, I don't, uh, and I'm I'm really b- been on that, you know. It doesn't have to be your truth, but I am. Uh, I just really believe that, uh, uh, you know, this is not a curse from God. 
as I told the clergy, you know, I believe the bumper sticker shit happens is a profound theological statement. And uh, <laughs> it does. It does happen. Shit does happen. And God is in all of it. God's right there in the middle of all of it. Not manu- uh, not micromanaging it, not uh, able to uh, fix it, but always in the middle of it and uh, loving us through it. And if you enjoyed the first part of my interview with Bishop Rickle, you can hear the second and final part on the St. Mark's podcast page.